The scripture reading will be from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? This year we have been engaged in a series throughout the year on the gospel and trying to understand in greater detail what the gospel is. The gospel is for all. We have looked at and we have tried to come to a greater understanding of what all is involved in the gospel. Because as you see in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, and he says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Where Paul says that Abraham, he heard the gospel. That may seem a peculiar statement if we tend to think of the gospel as only about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because how would Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Jesus ever walked this earth, how would he have ever heard about Jesus and his death or burial resurrection? Or sometimes we may go a different direction where we think of the gospel and the common phrase that we might use that we obey the gospel. Or we have obeyed the gospel. We might use that in a past tense phrase. That I obeyed the gospel at the age of 12 or 14 or something like that. And we might think of the gospel in that sense where we are obedient to it. And yet that, I think, fails to include what Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians that Abraham heard the gospel in some form or another. There was good news proclaimed and told to Abraham. Because fundamentally, the gospel is about God's promises. And God's promise to act and to save mankind through the seed that would come from Abraham through Jesus Christ. As we have been reminded, that is why we are here this morning. That we are here to praise God, we are here to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and we're, we've surrounded around the table to remember Jesus and His death, and we're so thankful that you're here. If you're visiting with us, we hope that you will take out a Bible and study along with us from the Word of God, because we want to consider some things that are important, that are critical to the nature and the fundamental concept of what the gospel is. Because as we have tried to demonstrate and show, the gospel is about God's promises. And the gospel shows how those promises have been fulfilled through Jesus in His life, in His ministry, in His preaching, in His teaching, in His death, in His resurrection, even His exaltation to the right hand of God to sit on the throne of God. 
That is all a part of the gospel story. And the gospel is about God and how He saves us from our sins. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, a verse that many of us are probably familiar with, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 16, when Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the gospel is God's power unto salvation. And when we speak about the gospel, we think about being saved from our sins. We think about the forgiveness that has been achieved through Jesus Christ. And the gospel is about God and His working. It's about Jesus and what He has accomplished. But there is a secondary concept or element of the gospel that involves you and me. Because the gospel is supposed to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul says in the book of Romans in the first chapter, if you're there, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 5, as he has been describing himself as an apostle, a bondservant of Jesus Christ who has been sent apart for the gospel of God, he says that he is preaching the gospel in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. That Paul, he has here in, in his mind that because I preach, because of my apostleship, it's supposed to bring about the obedience of faith. People are supposed to hear the Gospel and obey it. That's a concept that Paul has here and that he is trying to convey to the church at Rome. The Gospel demands a response. And as I was mentioning, sometimes people would limit the Gospel when they hear that term. They want to limit it to only certain facts that someone has to believe about Jesus. That He was born of a virgin, that He lived on this earth for about 33 and a half years, that He taught and that He was preaching the Kingdom of God and that He died for our sins, He was buried, He was raised on the third day, and He ascended into the right hand of God, into heaven. And we sometimes limit that story, and as I mentioned, that, that verse in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8, we neglect some meaning of the word gospel. But sometimes in our zeal and in our fervor to try to convert people, to try to teach them what they need to do to become a Christian. We emphasize the need to be baptized and the need to be obedient to the Gospel. And sometimes that's where we start our conversation with our friends, isn't it? Maybe they already believe in Jesus Christ in one sense or another. And they just need to be taught more about what they must do. But I would suggest to you, if we start every conversation there with the need to respond in obedience to the gospel, then we're probably not presenting the full scope of the gospel. Because as we see, and as we will tie in this morning, 
The gospel, really, you have to go to the story of Abraham in some sense. In the life of Abraham and what God promised to Abraham to get the full picture of how the gospel is used. But what we see is that God, He has called us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that if we have this limited and narrow understanding of the gospel to only be about the story of Jesus, there's nothing that's calling us to action, is there? But if you would notice with me in three passages in the New Testament, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul makes a statement here to the church of Thessalonica as he has been talking about the coming of Christ and His second coming, as he is speaking about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, he says that those who are doing what is wicked and wrong, he says in verse 8 that Jesus, when He returns, He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In First Peter, as we read just a moment ago in our Scripture reading, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 17, notice what Peter says. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, in Romans chapter 2, in Romans the second chapter, and in verse 8, the Apostle Paul here, he doesn't use that strictly that phrase of do not obey the gospel, but he says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath, and indignation. All three of these verses, I believe, are speaking of the same idea, the same attitude that there are people who are rebelling against the gospel of God who will not submit to it in obedience and obeying the truth and obeying the gospel. And what is interesting is that in each of these statements where you find that phrase, obey the gospel or obey the truth, it's actually stated in the negative. It's warning about those who do not obey the gospel. And the only conclusion is that God expects us to be obedient to the gospel if we don't want to face judgment and hell and condemnation. Because being obedient to the gospel is what we are supposed to do. As you might notice in a few statements in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, as the church was really beginning to grow and to experience some difficulties, there is a statement after they have overcome some of those problems and disagreements. In Acts chapter 6 and in verse 7, it says, The Word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You see? Obedient to the faith. There is this expectation that we need to be obedient to something. To the words that we hear. 
to the gospel message. There is the expectation that we would obey the faith, obey the truth, obey the gospel. In the book of Galatians, Paul uses an interesting statement as he is chastising the churches of Galatia for having turned away and having been deceived by what he says is another gospel. In Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 7, Paul says that you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. He's very disappointed that the brethren have turned away, that they are no longer obeying the truth. And there's that phrase, obeying the truth. I want you to see this in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 5, we discussed this a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study in the book of Colossians. But in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 5, notice what Paul says here. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, it's the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 8 that they were not obeying the truth. They were not obeying the gospel. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, you were doing well, but someone has hindered you from obeying the truth. They were no longer being obedient to the gospel. And I think sometimes we have this, again, a very narrow understanding of that phrase of obeying the gospel, don't we? We sometimes think of it as the moment that we were baptized, at whatever age we were baptized, that's when we obeyed past tense the gospel, right? But what do you see here? That in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 7, Paul has this understanding of the gospel and our obedience is that it should never cease. We should always be obeying the gospel even after we're baptized into Christ and have come into fellowship with Him. We never stop obeying the gospel. Because obeying the truth is what is expected. But what we have to begin to understand and our mind needs to be open to seeing this is that the Gospel is about the story of Jesus Christ, but it is so much more than that. The Gospel is about God's promises. The Gospel is about Jesus from His birth throughout His life and His ministry, about His death, burial, resurrection, His exaltation to the throne of God. But so far in those things, there's nothing that we should be obedient to, is there? So how can we obey? How can we obey a story? Have you ever wondered that? If the Gospel is only a story, how do you obey that? We read a lot of books around our house. You read, I'm sure as many of you do, you read to your children. But what is interesting about any children's book is that there's not a call to action usually, is there? There's not a call to obedience. It might just be a fun novel. Yesterday, after Xander's been recovering from surgery, I read a Goosebumps book to Xander. Trust me, there was nothing to obey after reading that book. <laughs> Just reading a story, there's nothing to obey. 
And I think that should help us begin to see that the gospel is something much broader than simply the story about the life and the death of Jesus Christ. The gospel contains commands that we must obey. It has been said that the gospel contains facts to believe, commands to obey, and promises to enjoy. And that may be somewhat of an oversimplification of what the gospel is, but I think it's getting to the right sentiment. That there are things that we have to believe, that there are facts that we have to accept as true, that we have to understand the story of Scripture. We have to understand how the Bible works in a very comprehensive way and the life of Jesus as a very important and critical and climactic point in that story. But then there are commands that are given to us that also becomes part of the Gospel. And as we have been studying throughout this year, we've been looking at the facts in many ways. We've been looking at God's promises to Abraham and that how those have been accomplished through Jesus. We've been looking at the prophecies. We looked at several prophecies from the book of Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah. We have looked in great detail over the past few months about the life of Jesus as part of that Gospel story. But now, we take a a very important turn in our study. Now the story is going to become about you and me. What are we going to do about what we have heard? What must we obey? What are the commands that we should obey to be obedient to the Gospel? And the first thing is that we must believe the Gospel. In the book of Acts, in Acts the 15th chapter, in Acts chapter 15, and in verse 7, as there is a meeting going on between the apostles and the elders and the whole congregation there in Jerusalem, and the apostles and elders are speaking together to discuss some things that we're troubling the churches at this point in Acts chapter 15 concerning circumcision and concerning the acceptance of Gentiles. And Peter stands up and he says in verse 7, Luke records, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. that people would hear the Gospel and believe. I think that's in perfect harmony with what Paul said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That whenever we hear God's Word, when we hear the Gospel, it is supposed to bring about faith and belief. And many people, they, I think, have a very shallow understanding or very narrow view of what faith is. But what we have to recognize, whenever people might say we're saved by faith alone and there's nothing that you have to do to obey God, maybe you have some friends that believe that they're saved at the point of faith. And faith only. They, there's nothing they have, they have to do. They certainly don't have to be baptized because that's work salvation, right? 
Well, what I think is important to point out to them is that faith itself is obedience. Because Jesus in John, the 14th chapter, in John chapter 14 and in verse 1, Jesus said to the apostles, believe in God, believe also in Me. And He's not saying that's uh, voluntary. It's actually an imperative. The Greek verb there, it's an imperative. It is a command. Jesus says you must believe in God and you must believe in Me. Faith. Belief. It is obedience. It's an act of obedience. Having faith is something that we must do. And the kind of faith that we must have is an obedient faith. That's why in the book of Romans in the first chapter, Paul can talk about the preaching of the Gospel as bringing about the obedience of faith. He says that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. He also uses that phrase at the end of Romans. In Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16 and in verse 26, when he says, But now is manifested by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Now when you hear the words of the Gospel, it's supposed to bring about faith and that kind of faith that we're supposed to have is an obedient faith. Faith is obedience and obedience is faith. Because true saving faith always obeys. That's James' whole point in James the second chapter. In James chapter 2, when James is trying to help us understand what faith truly is, he says in James chapter 2 and verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The answer is obviously no. He continues on, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? James uses a very practical illustration here, doesn't he? He says, if you believe that faith does not include any kind of obedience or any kind of activity or any kind of work, it's just like if you run across someone who is homeless or who is suffering and you say, hey, you be warmed and you be filled, but you don't give them any food, you don't give them any clothing. What good is that? It's not any good. And he goes on, James says in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The kind of faith that we are called to have is an obedient faith. A faith that would submit to the words of the Gospel that we hear. As Peter said that people heard the word of the Gospel and they believed. We have to have this understanding of faith that is more robust and more fully developed. 
that as we believe in God and as we believe in Jesus His Son, who died for us, we must believe in the Scriptures as the source of what is instructive and authoritative for us. And as such, our faith must be ready to always demonstrate itself and prove itself through our obedience. We are saved by faith. Let no one question that. But we are not saved by faith alone. True faith is never alone. So we must believe the Gospel, but then we must be willing to repent of our sins. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts the second chapter, as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus, 50 days after His resurrection, Jesus had ascended into heaven, and Peter is preaching that first Gospel sermon where he is speaking to the people about Jesus and how they crucified Him, how they killed Him, and how God raised Him up, and how He has fulfilled the prophecies of David, that He is sitting on the throne of God, the throne of David, sitting at the right hand of God. And he proclaims in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I first want you to see is that first word that Peter said. Repent. Repentance is literally a change of mind. Have you ever changed your mind about something? It could be just the restaurant that you want to go eat at or wherever you might want to go on vacation. Have you ever changed your mind? That's essentially what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's a change of conviction. And it leads to a change in your action. And the point here is much more important than anything about where someone might go to eat or where they might go on vacation. The point is that they had killed and crucified their Savior. And now they need to repent and they need to recognize Him as their King. Where they disregarded what He said, they blamed Him as being a false teacher. Now they need to recognize Him as the true prophet and spokesman that has come from God. They need to accept Him and His exalted position. And they need to obey Him. That's what Peter is trying to convey. Because repentance is always, and I mean true repentance, true repentance is always going to be demonstrated through action and through behavior. In Matthew chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 3, 
We see John the Baptist as he was preaching and as he is preparing for the coming one, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, he is preaching hard. He's preaching a message of repentance. And it says there in John, as he is speaking with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That you need to bear fruit as a result of your repentance, of that change in mind. It must come along with some change in action. In in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul is standing trial and he is before Herod Agrippa II in, in Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 26 and in verse 20, as Paul is describing his ministry and his preaching of the gospel, he says to Agrippa in verse 20, that he kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You need to do what is in harmony with your repentance. I think sometimes we have this idea that repentance is what you do when you come forward, right? That that's repentance. That you come to the front and you take... This is my description of it and how we sometimes think about it. You take the walk of shame. You come to the front and, well, that's your repentance right there. You need to, if there's sin that's in your life, we need to not think of this as a walk of shame in the first place. We need to find, think of this as the walk of love where we can find consolation and forgiveness. But then we also need to understand that just coming to the front of the building and talking to the preacher or whoever it might be up here, and that's not necessarily repentance, or at least true repentance. True repentance is going to be seen once we leave and once we walk out the doors. That if we have offended someone, we need to go and we need to apologize. We need to make things right. That we need to go and seek forgiveness from those that we have wronged. That's repentance. That's what is required. Notice what Mount says in his dictionary in in defining the word repentance. He says that he uses the Greek words there. I'm not going to bore you with that. But he says that an accurate understanding of the use of repentance in the New Testament is essential to grasp the gospel message. You see that? He says we have to understand repentance if we're going to understand the gospel because it does not allow for someone to obtain salvation simply by intellectually believing that Jesus is the Son of God without repenting of sins and turning to live for Him. I think he's spot on. Now I think Mounts would probably not say that about baptism. 
which I would find inconsistent. But he at least recognizes that there is something that must be done beyond an intellectual belief about Jesus, that the gospel, it requires change, true change. That when we have sinned against God, we have to come before Him and we have to say, God, we have sinned. And that we need forgiveness. And that I'm going to vow and commit my life to change. And I'm going to stay away from the things that I have done that were wrong. And I'm going to start doing what is right. I'm going to repent of sins and I'm going to start living for You. That's what repentance is. But then we must be willing to confess our faith in Jesus as our Lord and as our King. In Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And we have to recognize Jesus as our Lord and Master. That when we confess Jesus, and maybe it is whenever someone comes to the front to be baptized, we might ask them, do you believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God? That is no small thing when they say yes. Because that is their their word that says, yes, I acknowledge Jesus as my King and I'm giving Him my life. And this really, this confession, the importance of it is, is extreme. Because it's that confession that becomes the basis of a continued life of allegiance and faithfulness to God and to Christ. There are several verses that we might look at, but in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 1, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then you continue on throughout the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews chapter 10 and in verses 23 through 25, we oftentimes will go here to talk about the importance of assembling with the saints and being here for worship. And that's a valid point that we need to make from Hebrews 10. But the whole point really, I think, is much bigger than that. He says in Hebrews 10 and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And the point that we need to sometimes make about those who don't attend is that maybe they're wavering in their confession and their faith. That's why he says that we should not forsake our own assembling together. That confession is the basis of a continued life of giving Jesus our heart and making a commitment to serve Him. And then we must be baptized to join Christ. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and each of you be baptized in the name 
of Jesus Christ. Think about the term disciple with me for a moment. The term disciple means to be a follower. And many people would probably be very willing to agree with most of what we have studied this morning up to this point. They might falter right here when they hear, oh, you got to be baptized? That's work salvation. That's, you know, baptismal regeneration that you think the water saves you or something. I don't think that at all. You think about that idea of discipleship, following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, you can turn there if you'd like to. It's the account where Jesus was baptized. If Jesus was willing to be baptized, are you willing to follow Jesus to the water? Are you willing to go where Jesus went? Are you willing to follow the footsteps of Jesus? That's what being a disciple requires. Following in His steps. And when we are baptized, I want you to notice the language that is used, particularly in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, and in verse 12, in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 12, he says, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him, through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. There are several things that we could talk about. First, we see that baptism is a burial. It's not just sprinkling or pouring. It's a burial. It's immersion. But what I really want this, you to see is that this is where it all comes full circle, isn't it? The Gospel, as we have talked about so much of it, is about the story of Jesus. And I think that still there's still more to it, but so much of it is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then we think about obeying the Gospel. And we're talking about baptism in particular right here. This is when we connect the line and it becomes a circle. That when we are baptized, we are joined together with Christ in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. Verses 3-5. through Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 that we are clothed with Christ. That when we are joined in baptism with Christ, that's when we become part of the Gospel story. That's when we become part of this. And when we are joined with Christ, and we are clothed with Christ. Notice the language in Galatians chapter 3. 
in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 27. He says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. That when we are joined with Christ through baptism, we become part of Abraham's family. We're an heir or a descendant of Abraham. Why is this all important? Because, remember where we started our study this morning? In Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 8. Where Paul said, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. How is that fulfilled? Through the sending of Jesus Christ. And when we are obedient to the Gospel, and when we are baptized and we are in union with Christ, we are then in Abraham's family. And it's baptism that brings us all full circle, not even just starting at circle at the story of Jesus, it is actually all, taking us all the way back to the story of Abraham and God's promise to him that all families of the earth would be blessed through his descendants, through his seed. Baptism is when all of that comes together in full circle to the promises that God had made unto Abraham. That is what we must do if we're going to obey the Gospel. Yet, it does not end there. Because we must obey the Gospel, but then we must continue in obedience to the Gospel. As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, and verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. After we become a Christian, we have to make it our whole life's purpose to live out the Gospel in our attitude, in our conduct, our behavior, in how we interact with one another within the Lord's church, how we work, our work ethic for our employer, how we treat our employees, how we might talk to our neighbors. Obeying the Gospel leads to a life living the Gospel. And just a quick little preview, that's what we're going to be talking about next month, Lord willing. And we have to conduct our life in a way that is in accordance with the Gospel of Christ, we must be willing to live out a life that is in consistent harmony with the rest of the Gospel that we have been talking about. The Gospel is something that we must obey through faith and it's demonstrated 
through our repentance, confession, and baptism into Christ. As well as our continued service and obedience. And after we are baptized into Christ, we are saved and we are given newness of life. Our sins are forgiven. We become a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, and we become part of the gospel story. This morning, if you have never named the name of Christ, if you have never clothed yourself with Christ, if you've never come to the waters of baptism and have your sins washed away, we encourage you to make that commitment this morning. To come to Him. Believing in Him. Jesus went to the waters to be baptized. If you want to become His disciple, would you not follow Him in His footsteps? If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?